Welcome to the third audio edition of the Biolines Network. In here you'll find four articles from different publications in the network, read by our team of readers. Thank you to our writers for writing them, and to our readers for recording them. We hope you enjoy. Unite's New General Secretary, New Dawn for Labour or Cold Wall, by Jane Thomas. This was published in Yorkshire Byland on the 26th of August, 2021. The election of Unite the Union's New General Secretary is news that seems to have passed most people by, which is surprising, given the implications it has for the future of the Labour Party. As it turned out, the election sprang a surprise winner, Sharon Graham, who becomes the first woman to lead the union. Sharon Graham reached the top of the hard way, leaving school at 16 to become a waitress and organising her first walkout over pay at just 17. Since then, Graham, who is now 51, has worked her way through the ranks at Unite, including time spent leading its organising unit to recruit members and develop campaigns. Graham beat Steve Turner and Gerard Coyne to the top job. Turner was tipped as the frontrunner and seen as the natural replacement to Len McCluskey, the retiring general secretary. Coyne was viewed as a moderate candidate and supported by many who backed Keir Starmer. McCluskey was an increasingly controversial character. He wasn't afraid to dabble in the affairs of Labour, with high-profile and personal interventions in the last two Labour leadership campaigns. This matters. Unite is the second largest union in the country, with 1.4 million members. It has been Labour's single biggest donor. Recently, relationships have soured to the extent that the executive of Unite voted to reduce donations to Labour by just under a million pounds. The loss of such a sum to a castrap party is significant. But this election brings to an end the McCluskey era and an increasingly hostile relationship between the union and Keir Starmer, who was viewed by McCluskey as too right-wing. This may be welcome news, but Graham has warned that there will be no blank check for Labour and that this no way means a return to the level of funding that the Labour Party has had in recent years. According to the Times, this could still unsettle Starmer's leadership the paper reports that during her campaign, Graham threatened to withdraw funding from Labour and criticised Starmer's record as leader. Keir Starmer has failed workers and needs to step up to the plate, she said. Her campaign slogan was, it's Westminster versus the workplace, and a manifesto that said, we have tried our political project within Labour, it has failed. The Guardian's take on this is that the relationship between United and Labour will be calmer, but more distant. The paper quoted one senior Labour Party figure, who knows her well, as predicting a return to the days of Ron Todd, a respected and formidable leader of the union in the 1980s and 1990s. McCluskey publicly backed United Assistant General Secretary Steve Turner. The Guardian reported a Labour Party sources saying, at least the Len psychodrama is over. We may see more industrial agitation from her, but less political undermining of Keir so she may produce a different type of challenge for him. So, what now for Labour? The New Statesman said, her victory means figures on all sides of the Labour Party have something to be pleased about. There is a sense the relationships between the two can now only improve. One thing that's certain is that she won't be directly involving herself or the union in the same way McCluskey did. The real question now is whether or not that leads to giving less money to the Labour Party. Financially, Labour is going through a challenging time. It was recently reported that Labour is axing 90 jobs from its staff base in an attempt to shore up its dire financial situation, caused by having to settle costly legal cases and fighting three general elections in close succession. But there is also cause for optimism, 
with the prospect of both the individuals who'd previously backed the party being prepared to donate once again, now that Corbyn is no longer leader. Money is one thing, but the organising heft of Unite should not be underestimated, especially in a general election. Union officials often roll up their sleeves to help campaigns on the ground, supporting the leafleting efforts, phone banks and foot soldiers that form Labour's ground war during an election. The wealth of their organising experience and local knowledge on the ground can be invaluable. And Unite also has a track record of involving themselves in the selection of parliamentary candidates, something that has given them a not insignificant influence in the parliamentary Labour Party. What the future holds for Unite and the Labour Party is going to be very interesting. Whether Labour have a sniff at winning the next general election is up for debate. To try to do that without support, financially and organisationally, of Unite makes it much harder. But it is early days and we may yet see a new relationship being forged that benefits both without the uncompromising and to some damaging stance in the classic talk. Drivers dismiss bring in the army plans to stock supermarket shelves by Peter Thurlow, read by Stephen Tomlin. The immediate cause of empty supermarket shelves is Brexit, Hawley's claim, and the idea that bringing in the army would solve the driver shortage problem has been greeted by the industry with ridicule. Claims over the weekend that the government is considering bringing in the army to cover the lack of drivers it came out of the blue for Hawley's. The first they knew about it was reading the story in the newspapers. But the reaction seems to be one of disbelief. The industry has long predicted major problems. But those problems have now reached what the Peterborough-based Road Haulage Association calls catastrophic proportions. The latest crisis does not come as a surprise, even if the government's supposed solution does. Our members know nothing about bringing in the army at all, says Tom Cornwell, East of England area manager for the Road Haulage Association. Only what they've read in the headlines. There are any number of practical problems confronting the idea which make it unworkable. As Cornwell notes, most army drivers are territorials who already have day jobs. So to have them take on a new role keeping the supermarket shelves stocked would mean removing them from their usual work. Bringing in the army would only provide a tiny number of the drivers required. Military drivers have entirely different experiences and conditions for driving HGVs, Cornwell points out. They're not trained to drive commercial HGVs on the urban road network. Many would have no experience of driving an Arctic. Commercial HGV drivers are highly skilled professionals who work to different regulations. A key question, however, may be on what contractual basis army drivers would be brought in? Would they be loaned to hauliers to fill the gaps? In which case, who would pay them? Or would the army act as a giant national haulier, taking on contracts itself? If so, how would it charge for its services? Or would it not charge? Haulage is a highly competitive sector. How would the RHA and its members react to the possibility of disruption possible undercutting and ultimately perhaps putting them out of business. Then which government department would run such a scheme? Or would there be several involved? Business, environment, transport, defence? Also 
It is estimated there may be 2,000 army drivers who might be employed in the task. But the driver shortage in this country is estimated at 100,000. We've been campaigning about the driver shortage for years, Cornwell complains. The Brexit referendum aftermath saw EU drivers start to leave the UK. And we've lost 15,000 this year too. What we don't need is headlines. We don't want a sticking plaster. We need long-term solutions to the industry's problems. So, the empty shelves in supermarkets are a symptom of an industry potentially in crisis. And one in which some of the structural issues may potentially prove insurmountable. Though the association is circumspect on the reasons for the present food shortages, individual hauliers are less so. John Swallow is Joint Managing Director of Jordan Freight of Felixstowe. No one must forget that what's driving this present crisis is Brexit and nothing else, he says. It's not Covid. The situation right now is down to Brexit. It's that simple. Something like 80% of incoming goods was carried by international carriers. European drivers used to come over with a delivery and then do a few internal deliveries as well. That's a major contribution to our problem because the UK industry hasn't been able to pick up the slack. And it was so obvious that this was going to happen. Swallow's views on how this was first allowed to occur and then not reported are pointed. It's not as though people didn't know, he says. When this all happened, I began doing interviews and I hadn't done this sort of thing before. At first, I thought people didn't understand. But over time, I began to think there's something else going on. It's quite clear now that there was some other agenda at work. The news says it's all down to Covid or something else. But it won't talk about Brexit. It doesn't want to do it. It doesn't want to go there. For good environmental reasons, there is pressure to reduce the number of HGVs on the road. But as yet, there's no other realistic means of delivering goods. Environment apart, the old problems will remain. The job is often poorly paid, and some drivers make less than a minimum wage. It is stressful. Drivers complain of not being appreciated, and there are few facilities open to HGV drivers. It's not going to be a career which will be around for much longer, says Swallow. We have an ageing workforce. I visit schools, and the kids all think it's something their granddads do. It's really not on their radar. Because Elon Musk is doing this or that, trucks won't be around in about ten years. Brexit may be bringing the haulage industry to its knees, but even if a solution were found for the immediate problem, those threats to its future remain. Hauliers dismiss bringing the army plans to stock supermarket shelves by Peter Thurlow was read by Stephen Clark. The COVID Climate Crisis by Amber Hill for West England Bylines read by me, Julian Greenbank. The world has been put on pause but climate change hasn't. What on earth is going on? 2021. Some would, quite rightly, 
describe it as a year filled with tragedy. All of us have felt the impacts of COVID-19, whether it's through losing loved ones to the illness or being shut up in our homes. As a nation, we have been unable to go about our daily lives. It is hard to deny that this has caused immense hardship. However, this fateful year has also been characterised by another global catastrophe, one that has been developing ever since the industrialization of our world. Climate change threatens the foundation of our lives, and we could all be forced to slow down and look at the natural environment as a means to escape. It seems we are finally taking notice. The tranquility of lockdown. When the first lockdown was announced, the world went into a state of suspension. The number of flights halved. Road traffic in the UK was cut by more than 70%, according to The Guardian's investigation on the subject. Wildlife finally had scope for exploration. Wild boar was spotted crossing pedestrian roads in Halifax, while goats took to the streets in Wales, perhaps searching in vain for humans to feed them. These rather heartwarming and optimistic images circulated to the internet, prompting many, including myself, to develop a new understanding and appreciation of how humanity's day-to-day activities hinders the environment. Nevertheless, one must be wary of the temptation to think that the climate crisis has simply stopped just because we aren't using our cars as much. Get it... (laughs) With people starting to get their vaccines and life starting to resemble some form of normality, we are once again emitting greenhouse gases and driving nature off our streets with our noise. Not only that, but lockdown has obstructed many international negotiations and initiatives to tackle climate change. Following the Paris Climate Accord of 2015, COPPA 26 was delayed by an entire year. Renee Cho, of the Columbia Climate School in June 2020, outlined in her article on the topic that this could cause plans that they submitted in 2015 to allow global temperatures to rise by a potential catastrophic three degrees, which would undo all the temporary environmental good that has been achieved at the height of the pandemic. Similarly, with countries suffering from huge amounts of national debt, money could be taken away from the conversation and scientific research, and refocused into getting the economy back on track. A noble effort, of course, but one that could be detrimental to our fight. Many discover the joys of walking. Unlike pre-Covid, when few of us had ever really taken the time to think about our individual actions contributes to this problem, most of us now see what life would be like without fossil fuels, without the commotion, without humanity, As a pastime, many of us went for walks in green spaces, used our gardens more, and generally treated the outdoors as a place of refuge and mental recuperation, an aspect which has become increasingly more important as the year has developed. A study by Nuffield Health in May 2020 found that 3 out of 10 Brits took up walking as a form of exercise during the lockdown to take care of their physical and mental well-being. Seeing nature from a new perspective, being restorative to our minds when many of us have been feeling stagnant, has given Brits a newfound respect for the world. 
So what can we do? Continuing to walk and cycle not only help reduce the risk of catching COVID on public transport, but also help reduce carbon emissions. Going on holiday in the UK will not only reduce plane emissions, but also have a knock-on effect of rebuilding our economy. Eating less meat will help protect the lives of animals worldwide, as well as doing wonders for your health. 2021 has been a year in crisis, but as COVID-19 has taught us, it is the small things in life which make all the difference. And we all need to do many, many small things to have a chance of saving the planet. Thirty-three-year-old Molly Moselle, that was a stage name, her real name was Mary Burslem, was a dancer. But, like most people in theatre then and now, she couldn't always get a performing job and was forced to take on other work. So, in January 1949, she was an ASM, an assistant stage manager, on a touring production of Ivan Novello's The Dancing Years at Sunderland Empire. On 14th of January, she left her digs in Eden Street, one of the Warrener's streets behind the theatre, almost all of which are now gone, and she was variously reported as telling her landlady that she was going out to post a letter or to buy a birthday card for the show's leading man, Barry Sinclair. She was seen by one of the Empire's dressers, Tom Kershaw, from the window of his flat as she turned into an alleyway which led to Garden Place, the road which runs along the side of the Empire and now gives its name to the Garden Place Bistro in the theatre. She was, he said, brightly dressed in an orange jacket and orange slangs. That was the last time she was seen. All oh, the police launched an investigation which turned into a national search with enquiries carried out in her home city Liverpool, in London and in Sheffield as well as at railway stations throughout the country. All possibilities, including suicide, were considered, but nothing was ever found. Troubled is probably the best word to describe her love life. Just a few months before these events, a 16-year relationship with comedian and panto dame Bunny Doyle, who was 54 and married, had come to an end. She then took up with a Sheffield hotel owner, Walter Hattersley, who, it is said, was also much older than her, and he too was married. She claimed he'd bought her a £200 engagement ring, which she couldn't wear because it was too valuable. Nothing was heard of Molly for more than 20 years. And then, on the 12th of October in 1961, a police launch on the River Weir found a rotting torso with part of one leg attached. It was assumed that the body had been buried in a shallow grave and had been washed into the river by recent heavy rains. At the inquest, it was revealed that it was the body of a woman between 25 and 50 years old who had been dead for a long time. It was estimated that she was about five foot three inches tall and the suggestion was that it might be the body of Molly Moselle who was five foot six 
although that would be impossible to prove. This was, of course, long before DNA testing. Molly, it is said, haunts the Empire. When the story was first spoken of, I don't know, but I do know that it was a firmly held belief among the staff that she walked the theatre when I started working there about 1968. Imagine an empty theatre the size of the Empire, seating 2,000 in the stalls, dress circle and boxes, upper circle and gallery, in almost total darkness with the ghost light that single bulb left burning on the stage of an otherwise dark theatre sending very little illumination into the vastness it is i can assure you very creepy with half heard sounds real or imagined sending shivers up and down your spine imagination Possibly, but too many people who are not given to imaginative flights of fancy claim to have seen a ghostly figure. But is it Molly? Hmm?